You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the podcast. Today, our guest is Barbara Brown Taylor. She's a New York Times bestselling author. She's a teacher, uh, recently retired from Piedmont College, and an Episcopal priest from down south in Georgia. And she has a few very popular books. She's written several, but one of them is Leaving Church, which she wrote about 10 years ago. And another is Learning to Walk in the Dark about three years ago. And both, uh, I think, probably somewhat about her personal story of faith and, and some of the experiences she's had walking with a lot of students and a lot of people in as she's uh, been a, a priest in the Episcopal Church. Barbara's sort of a big deal, if you haven't caught on to that fact yet. I mean, a lot of you know who she is. And uh, our topic today was discussing how the Bible is curated, which is a term that I don't typically use, but it means something like how it's managed and how it's controlled. And that can be both a negative thing and a positive thing. But we all have our own tendencies, our denominations have tendencies, personally we have tendencies, and the history of the church, tendencies to sort of manage this text and to to control it and to divvy it out uh, to, you know, to the masses in ways that people in power perhaps might want it to, to support certain theologies. Uh, there are translations that are chosen of the biblical text that, you know, are, are not necessarily the best ones, but we, we all have a, this, this approach to the Bible, all of us do, including myself, where we privilege certain things and, and we highlight certain things. And in that sense, I think she means to curate the Bible. We, we, we care for it and then divvy it out to others like in a museum. Hmm. Yeah, I'm really excited about the conversation. So, let's get to it with uh, Barbara Brown Taylor on curating the Bible. Human fingerprints for Christians are no problem because God decided long ago in Christian understanding to trust human beings with the message. Beginning with Jesus and moving on through the apostles, you know, right down to us, God decided to risk trusting the humans. I hear students who've been discouraged from taking a religion course in college because it will, quote, make them lose their faith. And guess what? It does. They lose a kind of faith. But others come to a kind of faith they never knew was possible before. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and 
She said, can I try some? And so I, I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast and welcome to Barbara Brown Taylor. Thanks for being here. I'm so happy to. Thank you for asking me. This is now off your bucket list. <laughs> where, where do you go from here? You know, Barbara, that's the thing. I don't know. It's Colbert. <laughs> That's a step down, you know, but anyway, so now it's, it's, we have fun here and it's great to have you here to talk about things that interest our listeners and interest us too. And one thing we have in common is we both have a little bit of background and Jared as well in teaching undergraduate students religion or the Bible in my case and Christianity. And, you know, probably you can riff a couple of stories there, but I, I know that with, in my context, it's and I mean this in a supportive way, it's not hard to surprise them with things that come up when you look at history or biblical scholarship in general, because, you know, many young people tend to have sort of a flat Bible and an experience where there isn't a lot of, there aren't a lot of contours to the reading of scripture. And I imagine, you know, your setting was different than mine at Piedmont, but I imagine you had similar kinds of experiences teaching undergrads as well. It's true. I, I come from the South, so students emerged from a, a thick cultural experience of Christianity, and plenty of them were involved in churches, but like good Protestants, in many cases, their relationships to their scriptures were rich with feeling and not so deep in history or in critical thinking, which we overuse in college classrooms, but still. So, it was always a big deal on my part to decide how to surprise them, intrigue them without wrecking their confidence in their tradition. Yeah, how do you do that? <laughs> well, they're all different, right? I mean, you have different populations. and Yeah, every class is different. Every, every year is different. And then clearly every decade is different. You know, the, the, the streams that move through the culture move through my classroom as well. So, the way I did it often was to stick as close to the historical record as I could in terms of the development of the New Testament canon, but give them different ways to justify their own positions about it. Because I had people very, very high on divine inspiration of Scripture or divine dictation of Scripture, and others who thought it was about as convincing as Greek mythology, as one student <laughs> told me after his course in New Testament. So, I would give them different ways to justify their own positions. And in some ways, that helped them relax enough to consider other places they could be. So, you were teaching them Scripture from uh, taking into account historical realities, let's call them, but trying to give them a space to sort of affirm where they are and let them maybe make peace with it in their own way at their own pace? True, and I couldn't protect some of them from seeing what they saw when they looked in a different way. Because again, many of them would say they lived by the Bible, that the Bible was their guide for living, but they knew very little about which books were where or who had written what. So, I used to start by telling them the difference between a devotional reading of Scripture, which was hugely important, and I always called their churches their primary centers. But 
I tried to distinguish that from a more academic look at Scripture, which I stressed as a secondary place. Classroom is secondary place, and yet there were many surprises. So, Barbara, what would be some examples of those surprises that you found kind of again and again when you would share this piece of historical knowledge that would shake people or have them asking a lot of questions? Are there any that stand out? Yes, clearly, every single time. And it had to do with the first 300 years of Christian history. Oh, that. I, I think the, the, the largest surprise, though we have no transcripts from the time, was that it took 400 years to agree on a New Testament. You know, we could look at earlier second century documents that suggested those 27 books were pretty solid a couple of hundred years in, but it was close to you know the 400s before the Christian church had agreed on the 27 books that would become the New Testament. That was a really long time for some students who had thought that it, I don't know, washed up in a bottle on shore, finished. And the second surprise for them, and they actually loved this because they're big on conspiracy theories that someone had been hiding the truth from them. So to allow them to read the Gospel of Thomas or fragments of the Gospel of the Ebionites or just to take a look at other texts around the same time that had been in the running. Some had even been on some final lists and then vanished from them. That was fascinating to them. So, so they liked that, but it did cause them to think differently about the New Testament. That it was... Curated. Yeah, it didn't just sort of pop up in, uh, in whole cloth at one point in time, but their decisions were made about what to keep and what not to keep. Yes, and the reason, well, my hidden reason for going over all of that with them was to engender a little theological humility, if I could, that they, whether they knew it or not, were already part of a Christian community that stretched back two millennia. And if they did see the Bible, and especially the New Testament, as a guide for life, they had a lot of people to thank for that. There were a, a lot of fingerprints on those texts they loved, and that didn't rob those texts of their authority. But it did make them beholden to people who had come before them. Although many people, I would imagine, you probably had students who you know, reflected teachings of their churches where having that human stamp in the canon, as you know, we call it, is, is actually a problem for the authority of the text. I imagine that you would run into an issue like that now and then? Oh, of course I would. And yet, I don't know, there was some kind of magic that could happen in a classroom, as long as I said, this is secondary, this is a second place. Yeah, I like that. Your churches are primary places, and then, oh no, all you have to do really is read the Bible to see differences between views. I, uh, one of my favorite things to tell them was the early church chose four Gospels that did not agree in every detail because they thought we could handle it <laughs> and, and that we could rely on that. Yeah. And in fact, that Gospel writers looked at earlier Gospels or earlier records and changed them to get across their theological point. And that's, I mean, I find that, too, to be sometimes a challenge for students who have been raised to think about the Bible as something that's kept under glass, that, you know, human beings had a minimal role in it. You know, they sort of wrote the words they were told to write. But in reality, there's, there's a human stamp, part of which is, as you're saying, Barbara, just even how these books came together and what choices were made. And 
Do you read things from outside of the Bible, too, and with them, or uh, how does that work? I have exactly four classes for Christianity. <laughs> oh, my. So, we usually have to do Scripture in an hour. You know, we've got one minute for Job. Do you have any questions? And then we move <laughs> on. So, I have very, very little time in the introductory course to do that. But, well, just today in Clarksville, Georgia, I walked into a store and met a former student, and she said, you know, I was just thinking about your class because my pastor was talking about the star in Bethlehem and how it was there for two years, and then it just vanished. And I said, how could it just vanish? And we stood over the white Christmas tree she was putting up and had a a wonderful discussion about the gospel according to Matthew and how he didn't think it was important to say what happened to the star. So, the storyteller himself was the first curator, you know, long before church leaders or copyists and editors got a hold of it. But I usually come back again with students if I see them really floundering to say that human fingerprints for Christians are no problem because God decided long ago in Christian understanding to trust human beings with the message. Beginning with Jesus and moving on through the apostles, you know, right down to us, God decided to risk trusting the humans. How does that work, Barbara, within, you know, you mentioned, and, and Pete mentioned, choices being made. So, you know, I think on the podcast, we, we've talked some about, you know, the Gospels and the, the fingerprints there that are clear differences. But you dropped something, I, it, I think that would be intriguing for our listeners, is what happened to the text after they were written and these choices that were made? What are some of the, the high points in that process that you've, again, found that your students really enjoy talking about? You mentioned some conspiracy theories of other books that didn't make it in and other things like that. Do you have a, a brief version of that process? It's always interesting to talk to students about translation because many have not thought through the complexities of translation that closer to our own time Gosh, I remember the New Testament scholar who first told me there were 5,000 manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts of the 27 books of the New Testament. I had to have another beer after that. That was so upsetting. And that scholars had to sit down, in my imagination, at long tables, you know, with all of these possibilities and come up with the most reliable versions of the 27 books that I knew as the New Testament. Uh, and then the process of translation. You know, do you attempt a, a translation like Martin Luther, or do you attempt a paraphrase like Eugene Peterson? Do you do it alone? Do you do it with other people? If you do it with other people, what kind of people? Like-minded people? Differently-minded people? Um, all of that, that's shaky ground, actually, to think about what it means to read in translation, because we would quickly study Islam and take our four class days for Islam and, and talk about Muslims' confidence in the transmission of the Quran in its original language. So, oh, I hope I gave students, you know, also some, some ground on which to stand, but that's quite a lot of information if your primary relationship with Scripture has been emotional. Right. Yeah, any sort of information is a lot. And, and you know, backing uh, you know, backing up a bit to manuscripts and translations, I know that in, in my context, the very fact that the primary Bible of the New Testament writers was a translation, the Septuagint, mm -hmm. the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, mm -hmm. which is 
necessarily a good translation. In fact, it's quite diverse with its own history that's complex with, you know, manuscripts and different kinds of versions of the Greek. And and then, you know, you know, we go to seminary and you learn Greek and Hebrew so you can read the originals, and then you find out we don't really have anything close to the originals. We have a <laughs> constructed text. We have a curated text on the level of uh, – even, you know, what readings are accepted to put into this Bible. It's not just the books themselves, it's the books that you accept. You have to make decisions all the time about what is the reading that we're going to value in this community, and decisions are often made on the basis of what a community expects. True, and I, um, at seminary, had Bart Childs as an advisor, you know, and he was the person who said to me over and over, this is the text the churches have lived with for 2,000 years, and that carries its own authority. So, you know, however these books got here, they have shaped Christian belief and practice. That that was a, a way to calm down people who got very anxious about the kinds of choices we're talking about. But there was also a kind of speech sometimes to be made. I'm making my classroom sound much more religious than it was. But there was also a time to say, you know, and given all of this, you know, how could faith be more important? You know, how, how could it be more important that you trust in some of these processes of transmission that are so complex and have so many people involved in them but it's messy yeah it it is messy and with any luck that again engendered a kind of humility you know my deep wish is people would own their own interpretations not give up on the importance of them um, not give up on defending them with everything in them but to exercise some humility in the process Mm-hmm. Not to trade stories here too much, but you know, no, one of the classes that I teach is on um, biblical interpretation, i.e. hermeneutics, and we look at the history of interpretation for that very reason mm-hmm. to show that you know this is this text has been handled, interpreted, mm-hmm. a different kind of curation has been interpreted in very different ways by people who knew a lot and who were a part of their cultures and contexts and. You know, to to show that you know, listen, you know, you're not the first person to think the way you do. Mm-hmm. Other people think differently, and what if it's all good? <laughs> Isn't that great? What if that's okay? You know, what what it's not about. You know, uh, you know. I guess the, the the fundamentalist and and sometimes evangelical tendency to seek the text mm-hmm. we can sort of lock into the way distant past and the interpretation of these texts that, that mm-hmm. uh, you know, gives us the right answer. And, and my goodness gracious, the whole history of at least Christianity and Judaism has, you know, borne witness to such tremendous diversity of understanding. Yeah. And it's, it's, it is humbling. You know, it, it makes you see God maybe through the text rather than in the words of it. True. And I don't know when Christians became allergic, you may, allergic to that. When I, when I look at the sacred arguments of the Talmud, or I look at how the, you know, the four schools of, of at least Sunni jurisprudence, you know, interpretation of the Quran, temper each other. They're not fighting with each other, they're tempering each other. You know, each looking for ways to find the interpretation that, you know, can keep the Quran alive. And I think Christians have that. We have that in church fathers, wish there were some mothers, mostly fathers. But, but I don't know when we, yeah, when we got on that that tack. Can we come back to that? You mentioned the four schools of interpretation of Sunni, or, or I'm probably misstating what you just said, but could you flesh those out? No, no, I could not. Ask an Islamic scholar to do that. But yeah. I can tell you about, you know, a, a field trip to a, a masjid where a very articulate host 
um, went through a, a, a particular practical situation, and I'd give you anything to, to have rehearsed that conversation for you, but he just went through the four schools and, and how they, they dialogued and argued and asked each other questions about it and, and came to different conclusions, but tempered one another. And I just... Which I, is similar to Judaism, right? That, that's similar to Talmudic reasoning, as you mentioned. Right. Sometimes it's about the debate. Not that there are no parameters. Of course, there are parameters in both traditions, but it's not about everyone arriving at the same point of view. It's about different voices, as you said, tempering each other and moving mm-hmm. forward together rather than fighting all the time about who's right and who's wrong. Yes. And when you say that, see, it's also not about pure individualism, because in my limited knowledge of these other two Abrahamic traditions, they're citing precedent. They're, they're citing, you know, a rabbi of century X, or they're citing, or they're, or they're they're able to go back through the history of transmission of that interpretation of the Quran and cite where it came from and, and who came before. So it avoids, you know, on on one side, the pressure to come up with one interpretation, and on the other side, the kind of lapsing into whatever I think it means is what it means. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Barbara, you mentioned earlier this primary read and secondary read. I'm interested a, a little bit about your, you know, how have you navigated that? And I'm always interested in that question when I talk with academics who are sensitive to that primary read or, you know, that that there's a community of faith and that that still plays a part as Christians. So that walking that line between the, the community of faith and the academic and how have you navigate it. What are some concepts that's helped you as you come across these hard concepts or truths or historical facts about the religious tradition of Christianity? And then, you know, talking with students who would still be practicing their faith. And what are some of those concepts you might be able to to walk with people through? Well, the concepts, um, I want to answer your question. Of course, I want to go in my own direction with that too. But but the, the concepts have more to do with, it, it may be kind of a false faint at the beginning, F-E-I-N-T, you know, where I'm trying to set students at ease and say, you know, there are questions about how to live your life and and how to behave in certain situations. And this class is not designed to help you with that at all. You need to take those questions to your community of faith because, you know, in the same way science perhaps relates to morals or ethics, you know, the, the historical study of religion relates to its practice. So the classroom is not a place to, to answer your questions about practice, but it is a place to acquaint you with varieties of practice and belief um, so that you can perhaps peek out of the place you know best and see how some other people think and believe in a fairly safe classroom setting. What's been interesting to me, very interesting, probably because these are the students I want to pay attention to, are those who come into the classroom so excited about having a place they can ask questions that they could not ask in their primary communities, and who actually come to faith that kind of second naivete happens right there in front of me where they say things like, well, now I can take this seriously, or now I'm kind of interested in being a Christian, you know, but these are, these are often, you know, the not disaffected, but they're true late adolescents. I mean, they're 18, 19, 20-year-olds who have come to college and are ready to reassess, and, and some of them actually come to faith in the classroom in a way they say they did not come to faith in the 
the churches they were raised in. Now, that's no majority, but it sure is an interesting bunch of students, several of whom have gone on to seminary, have made huge commitments of time, energy, and money, you know, to go on and prepare for ordained ministry because of what happened in the classroom. I mean, not that the church didn't prepare the way. We're sorry to interrupt the podcast, but we want to take just one minute to mention two simple ways to support the work we do with the Bible for Normal People. One, just go to iTunes, rate us, and give us a review, but only do it if you like us. If not, just remember this is the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Two, if you haven't already, please check us out on Patreon, patreon.com, front slash, the Bible for normal people. There you'll find ways to join the community, contribute to the discussion, and offer your support at various levels. Last but not least, we want to give our deepest thanks to some of the members of our producers group. These folks not only email us feedback, but they jump on calls quarterly and have supported us financially. So thanks to Ryan Morrison, Michelle Chantos, Dave Carlton, Kevin Ming, Teresa Thompson, Philip Gibson, Lelia Fry, Stephen Goulstone, John Thomas, and Michelle Casey. We couldn't do what we do without you, so thank you. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Now back to the podcast. That's really interesting. I, I think that would probably be a path that would resonate with a lot of our listeners. Can you say more about this second naivete and how 
maybe just a little bit more information that you've seen, you know, examples of people that you've seen who would have had questions. And what, what do you think it is that has, whenever I have doubts and I'm not able to share them, it kind of keeps me on the outside. But whenever I'm able to ask the question, even if I don't get the answer that maybe some faith communities would deem certain or giving overcoming my doubts, but even just being able to express them leads to a new expression of my faith. Is that, I mean, what do you mean by second naivete in that? And what's been the process you've seen? Yeah, and I think I'm misusing second naivete, but at least a willingness to re-enter the world of Christian faith because they have heard some alternatives that make a lot of sense to them. And to repeat what you've said, to be blessed for asking questions and not suspected for asking questions, to be acquainted with a kind of, you know, a way of practicing Christianity that includes sacred dialogue and faithful argument and yes, but, and yes, but, I don't know. Um, To rewind, it is students who feel free within a safe setting of the classroom where they've already been reassured that this is an an academic look, but they hear one another asking questions they haven't asked before. So it's kind of the appeal of permission to wonder, permission to be curious, permission to doubt, permission to be skeptical, permission to own up to their own part in things. And then sometimes, again, late adolescent permission to disapprove of their parents and elders and everyone who got them where they are. But it's been wonderful to me as someone who, you know, pastored churches for 15 years to realize the classroom too can be a place of awakening of faith. And maybe more so for for many of them than the church context, because then it's, you mentioned before, Barbara, maybe going back to the church to discuss the spiritual implications, let's say, of the kinds of things they're discussing in the classroom. For many of them, that's a hard thing to do. That's a, That would be a big problem. They're getting in the classroom maybe with you what they could be getting in church, but they aren't, which is the freedom to ask questions. So, oh. uh, And they wind up leaving those churches eventually. Oh, yeah. And you've just put your finger on the huge bruise because... I had a friend say to me, I said, you know, my problem is so many students are so excited by what they learn. In fact, you mentioned the Septuagint, and I remember a young woman who went right home to her pastor and said, do you know what the Septuagint is? And of course, he did not. And, you know, so she became very irritating, irritating to him and irritating to her family. So I was talking to one of my colleagues about the alienating effect of education, and he said, well, that's not just in religion, that's in every area, you know, that that you don't fit as neatly into the communities you came from once you start asking certain kinds of questions. And that's very tough. When students say, I love this class, point me toward a church, you know, where, where we can keep talking like this. And I don't have a church to point them to. Yeah. And the difficult, at least one of the difficult factors there is that their upbringing it's sort of formed for them a narrative for their lives, but they're sensing problems with it and they don't know what to replace it with. Right. That's hard. You know, it's hard to know what to do in those situations. And, you know, I I have students, you know, maybe some of the same ones, but students who say, you know, I'm really mad my pastor lied to me all these years. Oh, I hear that. And I say, well, they didn't lie to you. They, They spoke from where they were and you met God there. And your journey began there, and it's okay, but you don't know where it's going to end up. 
and you happen to be someone who's come across information and you like it and you see the sense of it and, you know, welcome to that journey that many people wind up taking. But you don't go back to church and start correcting the pastor's sermons. No, you really don't, because you'll just make everybody miserable. <laughs> well, including yourself. Right, you that's know, right. And, and just maybe accept that stage in your life and then... You know, when when the time is right, moving on is not a sign of lack of faith. It's just a sign of changing and developing and growing. True. And so, you point out that there's a lot of pastoral care to do in the classroom as well. Because when students say that to me, I'll say, no, no, they loved you. They were giving you the best, you know, they had to offer. It was... If, the, if it had been vitamins, they were giving you multivitamins. They were giving you the best they had. So, so that didn't... That those weren't lies, it, but it might have been a simplification. You know, it might have been sixth grade, and now here you are in college. So I guess you didn't quite leave the pastorate, did you? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I like to say that I got out of the answer business and got into the question business. Well, that's a good way of putting it. And I get to give grades, which makes life so much easier. You can, you know, always have that threat. But you, you do have that. I mean, you're sort of a default chaplain or something. I know that the Bible and theology faculty at Easter, we sort of think of ourselves that way because we deal with the students on this ground level. And I remember, you know, I've never, ever wanted to be a pastor. And people ask me, do you ever want to be a pastor? No, no, no. And I said, wait a minute. I think I'm sort of doing that. I, I think I am. <laughs> and I don't know why I'm doing that because I'm not good at it. But anyway. Uh, okay, now I w can we get back? Uh, Jared asked a question earlier about curating because that's a really fascinating concept. And you know, you mentioned you know the canon around like in the fourth century, around four hundred, began to get finalized, and that's an act of curation. Have there been others that you see? You know, subsequent to that. Yeah, I I'm an Episcopalian, so I shouldn't say things like this, but I do think each of us curates our our own scripture, don't we? When someone wants to talk to me about the Bible, I usually say, if you got one with you, hold it up and let me see where the dark pages are that you've handled a lot and the ones where you never go. And perhaps even, you know, denominational groups and communities within denominations curate their own texts. Uh, you know, there are certainly churches that go by lectionaries and those that don't. And sometimes I think pastors and preachers have way, way too much say-so about how much of Scripture shows up in, in worship. But I do think that learning about how the New Testament comes to Christians curated is at least a way of coming to terms with the way we curate Scripture ourselves, And then, you know, with some luck, that strengthens one's resolve. It has strengthened my resolve to read more of it, you know, even the parts I wish weren't there. I'd like to do a kind of Jefferson thing and just snip it, but I can't. So, to live with the parts I just wish weren't there, as well as the ones I adore and read often, I don't know. There's a kind of, again, humility in that that seems helpful to own. You know, the way you're talking, it seems like the goal is to not have so much of the curated Bible or canon within a canon, but also it sounds like it's unavoidable and it's maybe something, is that something we should just, we should celebrate and just say, just as though, you know, we, we live in a, a pluralistic society where we live with our Muslim neighbors and we live with our Jewish neighbors and we're our Christian neighbors and we celebrate our diversity in the differences and traditions, even within Christianity, we all have our own Bibles, so to speak, that we all, you know, certain denominations, all the way down to individuals, we resonate emotionally and otherwise with certain parts of the text. 
is that okay? I mean, I hear you saying maybe there's some danger in that where some pastors maybe have too much power. They're often the community curators, yeah, the curators of interpretation within a certain community. I think pastors do do lead that. But see, I do believe we celebrate, but we also suffer our diversity, don't we? I mean, I think we do both. And the danger here in a conversation we're not going to have because we'd have to start all over again is what I hear so often about, you know, relativism, that the, the minute you say things like celebrating diversity, you've collapsed into relativism. And I don't think so. I think they're just fabulous discussions to be had about why I like Matthew's Jesus better than I, well, I like Luke's Jesus better than Matthew's Jesus. But I think to have a conversation like that is to invite Matthew in and Jesus in and you in and me in. And it's just to invite so many more people into the conversation to be able to both celebrate our differences, but also to suffer them. You know, if we you know, when we get to irreconcilable differences about our views of the nature of Jesus based on the portraits we get from those Gospels or our own experience. And I heard earlier, you know, the first key to that, though, is we have to own it. Like you said, if we could own our own curations and interpretations, that we are doing this, and then oh, we can uh, have those yeah. fruitful conversations. I, I'm afraid I have no patience for people who won't do that. <laughs> it, it just, it uh, it's, uh, I, God bless them. I hope they have a good time, but I just, I, I don't want to get into that conversation. You know, if if we're going to, there's no dialogue if we're going to sit down and argue about who has the right interpretation. I'm more interested in why that interpretation matters to you or what you base that on and tell me the story behind that and where'd that come from. Then we're into some kind of human narrative that is worthwhile. And, and that, I mean, it sings to me, Barbara, and I know that some listening might sense also the tension there between Scripture is something to be dialogued over, mm-hmm. even discovering our own humanity with humility, where they've been taught that that's not what Scripture is. Sure. Scripture sure. is that word from the top down, and you just do it. Well, see, and if I'm following what I'm saying, I'm not going to argue about that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if that is a way of making meaning that is making more of you, making more of your life and community, making you a more loving person, go for it. You know, don't don't listen to me. I mean, I'm a boutique flavor, so there's, you know, no sense in which I'm arguing for my understanding being the only correct understanding. One of the most intriguing things I learned in the classroom early on was a student who would interrupt me every three minutes to ask me to proof text what I was saying. Every three minutes. And then one day, he started talking about how the Quran is different from the Bible. And I said, how do you know that? <laughs> he said, well, my Muslim friend and I have two hours of scriptural study together every Friday. You know, we sit down and read the, the New Testament and the Quran together and talk about how they're alike and how they're different. I was floored that a student I would have called one of the most conservative students in the classroom was the one who cared deeply enough about Scripture to know why his Muslim friend cared equally deeply about Scripture. I never sat in on one of those sessions, but I wish I had. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, 
Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. You mentioned earlier several different stages of curation, and that intrigued me. And you went right to the personal one, which is really where this ends. That's that's exactly what people have to come to terms with. But I wonder if, you know, the realities of like maybe the Protestant Reformation in general might play any role in your thinking about this curating of the Bible and maybe curating, sort of managing it you know, for, for people for their consumption or, or, or anything along those lines. I'm not angling for anything particular, but just, you know, where else your thinking has gone on that very fascinating idea of curating the Bible? Well, and we've already, in terms of levels of curation, you know, I count six, and then there's us. And it's the original storytellers who decided what to include and what not. And then the church leaders who decided, you know, what the 27 books of the New Testament would be. And then, as we've discussed, the copyists slash editors, you know, who both copied and now we know sometimes edited as they went along. And then closer to our own time, the scholars who had to decide on the most reliable documents to work from. And then the translators, when you bring up Protestant Reformation, I won't tell you how old I was, you know, when I realized how different Protestants and Catholics were translating some Greek words in order to make cases for their own ecclesiastical polity, if nothing else, or their own understandings of Christian being and doing. I also have gotten into... In our own time, you know, interesting conversations. I read chiefly NRSV. Why? I went to an Ivy League seminary where that was the required version. 
But I've had plenty of students who are equally devoted to the NIV, and thank goodness the interpreter's Bible includes parallel versions of both, because, you know, one of my big deals in Life of Jesus is that Jesus never said he was the Son of God. And a student raised his hand and said, excuse me, he did. (laughs) And I said, he did bring it to me, and the next day the student brought it to me. You know, it's all around that Greek phrase when Jesus' interrogators say, tell us whether or not you are the Son of God. And in my NRSV, he says, you say so. And in the NIV, he says, I am. You got it right. And and I was floored, floored in the classroom. And I was an adult who, who was already a seminary graduate and, and an ordained clergy person, but just that difference in two popular translations, you know, never mind the fact that the Greek word diakonos for deacon is often translated servant when it's a woman and deacon when it's a man. That's a real significant difference. So, you know, translation, I think, plays a far larger role than than many of us are aware of. That's why I like reading parallel Bibles with a lot of different translations on the page. Students eat that up. They have the best time noticing the differences and getting curious about why. Yeah, we talk about the realities of the market and how Bibles are translated and the kinds of expectations that people have. And it's sort of a shame, you know, you're, you're treating the sacred text in a way to bend it and shape it in ways that I think even intentionally bending and shaping it to serve a subgroup, I guess, of believers rather than just sort of as best as we can. I mean, it's a bit naive to say, just let it be what it is, because you have to translate and there are tough decisions you have to make. Mm-hmm. And, and that that is, you know, we, we I encourage different, we don't have parallel Bibles that we use, but people bring whatever translation they want. And that works just as well. Yeah. Very interesting discussions about the NIV. Mm-hmm. Other translations don't say that. Hebrew doesn't say that. Greek doesn't say it, but it does. And, and uh, you know, if you understand something about the history of it and, and, and who tends to buy it, it makes a lot of sense. That's, I think, a wake-up call and even a bit unsettling for people, that translations are that different and the translation they grew up with is one that is as susceptible to this curating influence as even the bad guys. It's true, and I, and, you know, again, we talked earlier about sort of the, the bruise, and I, the, to wake up to what we're talking about can be very disillusioning. And I think it does take, I don't know, some support, some courage, some... <laughs> activity of the Holy Spirit to hold one steady, you know, to keep going, not to give up on the whole thing once you realize how many fingerprints there are. Um, Although they're set up for that, I think, you know, they're, they're set up for that downfall if they have been raised with a particular way that the Bible should be an uncurated mm-hmm. thing dropped from heaven. And it mm-hmm. just, it, it does, as, as you know, you know, and as, as many of our listeners know, this is exactly the post-traumatic stress disorder that they have to work through. Mm-hmm. And it's good to hear people such as yourself modeling, I think, a wise and compassionate way through some of these issues, because they, you know, these are people, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and they have feelings and stories and their faith means a lot to them. And you don't, you don't want to rip that away. But on the other hand, there are just some facts out there you know, that, that a lot of Christians and others have been able to assimilate, let's say. And, and it's, it's a good process for them to go through as well, probably even a necessary one, or else they have, like you said, this major faith crisis about the Gospels differ. Yes, and because I was raised by a psychologist, I console myself t- sometimes that I don't have the power to rip away anyone's faith. <laughs> and that, you know, when people's 
interpretive choices are important enough to them, they're not going to surrender them easily, nor should they. I do what I do, and then I trust them to do what they're led to do as well. Though it is, it's a sacred process, and I don't think the classroom gets enough credit for that. You know, I often hear it, I hear students who've been discouraged from taking a religion course in college because it will, quote, make them lose their faith. And guess what? It does. They, they lose a kind of faith. But others come to a kind of faith they never knew was possible before. Well, Barbara, we are coming to the end of our time here. And just wanted to give you an opportunity just uh, for our listeners, what books or what resources or, or final thoughts you would have, where would you point people to look into some of these conversations or other conversations that you've had in, in books that you've written? I wish I had written more in this line. The, the book I'm working on now is called Holy Envy after Christer Stendhal. And I'm trying to write a kind of memoir of a non-fictional Christian pastor who becomes a college professor and teaches these things and the sorts of markers we've been talking about that happen along the way, especially in my relationship with people of other faiths and and learning about the ways other people handle their sacred texts or their reliance on a tradition that, that doesn't include a sacred text, like Zen Buddhists or Native Americans. So, Holy Envy is the book I'm suffering through now. But I suppose in terms of the things we've been talking about, it would be in you know the older books of sermons, where week by week by week, I and a zillion other pastors struggled with a text in the midst of a somewhat diverse congregation, you know, to make sense of an ancient text in a contemporary world. So, I am not a big online presence, but there certainly are some some wonderful things out there for those who are and know how to Google well, including this podcast, one might add. Thank you. Yes. We're trying. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you can find a group of people that you can participate in the kind of conversations that Barbara was talking about that can be life-giving in your faith. Also, if you haven't already read them, we would encourage you to pick up a copy of her books, uh, Leaving Church or Learning to Walk in the Dark. I know for me, it was several friends of mine found that a really helpful book as they were walking through some times of doubt and questions in, in their faith. And to continue conversations like this, you know, please feel free to find us on the internet, especially my website, The Bible for Normal People. And continue listening to our podcast and sign up for the newsletter and uh, even join our online community at Patreon where we try to give a context and a setting for people to think about hard questions and to ask them and to answer them as best as we can. Thanks for listening, people.